for their scripture time. Hope you have your Bibles with you and that you'll turn to Matthew 10 from which Paul just read and if you would like to use one of the Bibles that are provided in the backs of the chairs you'll find Matthew 10 and the verses 16 through 24 on page 815. Page 815 and as always please take one of those home with you if that would bless you or if you know someone who would benefit from a copy of the scriptures. Well, in last week's sermon in our series in the Unexpected Kingdom, we looked together at the verses preceding this section here in what I called Discipleship 101 because I said Matthew 10 verses 1 through 15 is like a slightly more complicated basics class on what it is to be a disciple that is making disciples. And I also said that the next section might just be worthy of the designation of a 102 class, and that is what I have gone with. Because this section that follows that opening several verses, we looked last time at verses 1 through 15, and now this section before us is 16 through 23, is a bit more difficult. It's a bit more difficult to understand, particularly when you get to some of the eschatology stuff at the end of verse 23, which we'll get to in a minute, and if you don't know what eschatology means, we'll get there later. And maybe this section is also a little bit more difficult to stomach because of some of the hard and difficult sayings here. And so you could say, I suppose, that these verses are a little bit more advanced, but at the same time, we once again have to recognize that these are ultimately some basics for Christian mission. And remember the context of who Jesus is talking to in these verses that Paul just read for us. In verse 5, it says that he is sending the 12 apostles out and then instructing them. And these words that follow, starting in verse 16, is a continuation of these words. We've just broken it up into smaller sections to examine them a little more closely. And so, as we saw last week, there is simultaneously a part of this text just like the one before it, that is both not applicable to us and also is applicable to us. Because as we said last time, the apostles are different from us. We are not apostles. The apostles were an exclusive group that is not admitting new members. But at the same time, the teaching of these apostles, the sound doctrine that was given to them by Jesus and that they continued on after his ascension, does continue today through disciples like you and me. And so we do have the message of the apostles in our scriptures. And so there are aspects of their ministry that do apply to us as we go with the same message they were called to go with, as we saw in uh, the previous passage to say in verse 7, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We have that same, the same basics of that message, that the king has come, that he rules and reigns, and that we are to submit to him. So last week we saw three elements of Discipleship 101. I see four elements in what I'm calling Discipleship 102. And while 101 was pretty basic but challenging, this one, as I said, feels at least even more challenging, while at the same time needing to reckon with the fact that it is ultimately foundational. So four elements in the form of four calls in this passage, the first of which comes in verses 16 through 17, the call to be wary. 
See this in verse 17. Beware. And this section, this verses 16 through 18, are, is one of the classic Bible passages regarding persecution that ambassadors of Jesus will face. He has called these 12 men to serve as his apostles, as his sent ones, and to go target the Jews with his kingdom message, telling them that they were going to need to be strategically intentional, that they were need to proclaim a centrally spiritual message, that they were to serve selflessly, and that they were to search for persons of peace. And now, right on the heels of those things, he transitions to this word of warning. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Boy, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it, does he? I'm very concerned that the church in America, including us, has a very naive and privileged view of what the Christian life is supposed to be like. Brothers and sisters, we have been coddled, we have been lulled to sleep by the evil one's whispers that our, what our lives are supposed to look like. And what Jesus is talking about here as he sends men out into ministry is a wariness about an awareness about the need to be real about the opposition that followers of Jesus face. And this, these passages are how the whole thing started. It's at the foundational stage of all this and he says these things. And while we can fast forward to today, and look back on 2,000 years of church history and see many beautiful and wonderful examples of the advance of Jesus' kingdom mission all over the world, we also have to be realistic about the fact that these very men to whom Jesus was speaking faced horrific persecution. You don't even have to look outside your New Testament section of the Bible to see examples of the kinds of persecution that these men faced. Beatings imprisonments, and even death. And then, of course, you look even past the Scriptures to church history and see more and more about what kinds of persecution the apostles suffered and how many of them died for their faith. And then, of course, it's been true for men and women ever since and even besides the apostles, even though the apostles are who Jesus is directly speaking to here. Many men and women who have followed Jesus faithfully have faced opposition and persecution and even death from these wolves that Jesus speaks of in verse 16. And I don't have to tell you that it is not as if the world on the whole has gotten more inclined to receive and believe the message of the need for repentance and forgiveness. I don't remember if it was the last time they were here or a time before that, but it wasn't that long ago that I was speaking with Jeremy Schmidt, one of our mission partners in North Africa, about some of the things that they have faced as they have sought to serve the Lord in North Africa and some of the intimidating situations that they've encountered, even with demon possession and oppression. 
told him that I hear about that kind of stuff happening over there, but that I've never encountered it here. And we talked together about the reason that we don't see that nearly as often in the U.S. being that the evil one doesn't need that kind of demonic possession and oppression to, advance, to attack the advance of the gospel here in the U.S. Because here in the U.S., we sadly are under a much different kind of demonic influence. And that is that the influence of a spiritual delusion that life as a Christian should be tailored to our wants and needs and conveniences. We so often have this mindset, even though we know we have been called as sent ones of Jesus, not the same as the apostles, but with some similarities to them, called as sent ones, but we've got these conditions. I need to be as comfortable and convenient as possible. This, every aspect of my life needs to be ideal. I am going to focus on the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. My number one priority is my career. Or my number one priority is my family's well-being. Or my number one priority is protecting myself. These are the kinds of ideas and lies that the evil one and his forces love to whisper in the ears of many people, certainly not just in America, but perhaps in a unique sense here. And he whispers these things to both non-Christians and to Christians. And those lies and others like them have been successful in opposing or resisting the advance of Christ's kingdom because those ideas are diametrically opposed to the gospel. Friends, the gospel is a call to lay down your life and kneel at the feet of Jesus. It is a call to die to self, not pursue self. It is a call to surrender one's preferences, conveniences, ideals. It is a call to submit to the king. And friends, that is an offensive message to the world. So no wonder Jesus would say that the position of his servants, therefore, those called to go with his gospel message as they spread his kingdom message, are akin to being like sheep among wolves in a dangerous, threatened, vulnerable position. It's not a position of advantage and comfort. It's not a position of convenience hardly a position anyone would choose for themselves. And the kind of things that Jesus tells these sheep among wolves to expect isn't just like a neighbor giving a dirty look to you because you said something about the Bible or Jesus or whatever. It's not even something that we would consider more serious and definitely is more serious like the risk of losing your job over your commitment to Jesus. No, what he talks about here is being arrested and beaten. That's what flogged means. About being taken before government officials and all because of their witness about Jesus and his kingdom. And because of this reality that's coming for these apostles that we see fulfilled even in the rest of the New Testament and then certainly throughout church history as well, he calls them as sheep among wolves to be 
wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This is one of the most famous and important analogies for Christian ministry here. You know, the Christian life and the ministry that it includes for every single person who's a Christian is often complicated and often multifaceted. There are a lot of really important black and white aspects to the Christian life. God alone is God. Jesus is the only Savior. Salvation is only by grace through faith in Christ. You get the idea. But at the same time, there is also often a lot of need for a nuanced understanding and a careful application when there isn't a one-size-fits-all. And this is one of them. Jesus calls for His servants to be both wise like a serpent and innocent like a dove. That, to me at least, seems like the kind of thing that we would want to be just one or the other. Which one is it, Jesus? Is, what do you mean both? That can't be right, because how can you be innocent like a dove and wise as a serpent? Well, according to Jesus, it's both. He's saying as you go, you need to be realistic about the potential for different kinds of wolves. And the way, apparently, to watch out for wolves is to keep three other kinds of animals in mind. Sheep, serpents, and doves. And I just find this whole thing utterly fascinating. I wound up having to stop some of my study and move on to some of these other ones because of how fascinating and deep you can dive into this whole passage here. You're like a sheep among wolves, so gird your loins, as it were, to be like a snake and a dove. In other words, I think what Jesus is saying here is to be wise, not naive, but innocent and not jaded and cynical. I think that's a tough balance for us to strike. But it's what Christians are called to as they follow the mission that Jesus has sent them on. Because friends, if you're naive and not wise like a serpent, you may wind up missing some really important clues about who are your gospel opponents and who are your gospel allies. Remember, in the passage previous, Jesus talks about having discernment when going into a house. Is this a place where there's going to be gospel allies, or is this a place where you need to move on? And right after that, he says, be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. And so if you're naive, you're going to mistake which ones are your allies and which ones are your opponents. But it's also the same if you're the other way around. If you're just jaded and cynical and skeptical about everything, the same problem on the other side is going to occur. You will mistake an ally for an opponent when actually they are an ally. So Jesus is beautifully calling for shrewdness and cunning and strategy like a serpent. Wisdom, cunning like a serpent. For the sake of the advance of the gospel, by the way, not for preserving your life just for more days on earth, perhaps preserving your life for the sake of more gospel advance. But ultimately, at the center of this cunning and shrewdness is supposed to be looking for opportunities to spread the kingdom. And he also calls for harmlessness. In fact, you might have a translation in front of you that uses the word harmless like doves. Calling for meekness, gentleness, innocence. For the sake of holy and pure virtue and words and actions. Because as we know from even the rest of the New Testament and various other locations, these kinds of good works and virtues adorns the gospel message that you're spreading. 
And so, you could say it like this. Be sheep minus the stupid. Be snakes minus the venom. And be doves minus the fragile. Friends, like the apostles, though we are in a different stage of redemptive history and though we are not apostles ourselves, we are on mission and like them, we need this same kind of multidirectional mindset. Being like a sheep that trusts his shepherd even though he's in the middle of a pack of wolves, but also like serpents that are cunning, but also like doves that are harmless. So, call number one, be wary. Be on the lookout. Walk this path carefully. The second call, though, is to be courageous. Because these apostles, as they went forward with his message, and as they faced that hostility and persecution and animosity, they might have been tempted to shrink back in fear. But a call to courage here is not just as simple as being called to be brave for its own sake, or even brave on one's own strength. Rather, What it says is, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Three observations I have for us here in these two verses. First of all, Jesus assumes that they're going to suffer. You see that right there in verse 19. When they deliver you over. In verse 17, just a couple verses earlier, it said they will deliver you over to the courts. And in verse 18, you will be dragged before governors and kings, etc. And then in verse 19, he cements it even more. When this happens. And while Jesus is talking to disciples whom he appointed as apostles... And while, therefore, the suffering that he's talking about is specifically the suffering that the apostles would then face, this has been and continues to be true for disciple-makers all over the world ever since and even to this day. In fact, Paul, the apostle, puts it very broadly in 2 Timothy 3 when he says to his protege, all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. And so what Jesus was talking about here was a unique kind of apostolic suffering that was literally going to be fulfilled in some of these men's lives. And he did specifically have them in mind when he talked about being flogged and brought to court and so forth. And that specific kind of suffering shouldn't be expected by every Christian all the time. Certainly not every Christian goes through floggings and is arrested and so forth. But according to the Apostle Paul, later on in the New Testament, some kind of suffering, some kind of opposition, some kind of persecution is to be the expectation of every Christian. Because if you desire to live life for Jesus, you're going to bump up against opposition to it one way or another someday. So number one, Jesus assumes that they're going to suffer. Number two, he assumes that they're going to speak. He says, when they deliver you, don't be anxious about what you are going to speak. You know, the reason that they're going to suffer is connected 
to the fact that they're speaking because their message is especially spiritual in its nature and it is a call to repent and believe the good news of the kingdom. The message that they proclaim is a confrontational, offensive message. It's the message that we're committed to here at Redeemer Bible Church, that everyone by nature has sinned against God and stands before Him deserving of His judgment, but that in His grace and mercy, He has made the way for us to be restored to Him simply through faith. Not by works, not by anything that we can do, but just by repenting and believing that Jesus is our only Savior. That's confrontational, though, because it means there's something wrong with us. And it means we can't fix it ourselves. And it means we've got to submit to our Creator and trust Him and receive forgiveness for our sins. It means that our life doesn't belong to us. It means that we have got to sacrifice our own understood and former identity and then identify with Jesus. And so no wonder the apostles were going to suffer speaking a message like that. But as they're suffering, that proclamation is going to continue. They are to speak it, even when it includes suffering. But as they suffer, they can be courageous because the third observation here is that Jesus assures them that the Spirit will help them. That's why I think this is a call to be courageous because when you have God the Holy Spirit on your side, You don't need to fear. Rather, you've got every reason for confidence, for courage. God Himself is with you through His Spirit. And what Jesus says to His apostles is something that every one of His disciples, even to this day, needs to hear. What you are to say will be given to you. For it is not you but the Spirit speaking through you. My friend, when what you need to say is something that God wants you to say, especially when it comes to the proclamation and defense of the gospel, you don't need to fear because what you need to say will be said by you through the Spirit's help. And I understand that some of you very naturally and understandably get quite anxious at the prospect of speaking in front of people. And let me just say, first of all, you're not crazy. It's okay. And God will give grace to you. He will bring you along in His timing as you continue to constantly submit to Him your strengths to Him, your weaknesses to Him. He will give you grace. One of the earliest servants of the Lord, Moses, was not very interested in public speaking, and the Lord gave him the grace that he needed. So, friend, no matter who you are, no matter your personality, no matter where you fall on the, oh my goodness, I can't remember the name of that personality test where you're like an INTJ or an ENFJ or whatever, no matter where you fall in that, just plan on being someone who speaks for Jesus. And don't get overly stressed about getting it right or wrong. Just do it in faith, knowing that the Lord will be with you and He will give you what you need to say. And guess what? What He gives you isn't necessarily always going to sound as profound as you think it should. He's going to use you the way He made you. And He's going to get glory through your uniqueness being used in His hands. 
And so, friend, if you sometimes say things a little awkwardly, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Because God's going to use your uniqueness to glorify himself. If you're a natural public speaker, maybe God will put you in a position to use those gifts in a unique way. But if you're not, it doesn't matter because either way, it's about him empowering servants that he chose to spread his message, not about people holding back until they're comfortable with it. Or until life is more conveniently set up for it. Like we said last week, We're never going back. Life is always going to be crazy. You will never have time for this. So friends, according to Jesus, as we follow Him, we too can expect suffering that comes as a direct result of kingdom advancing ministry and gospel proclamation. And even when that kind of suffering is at stake, and even when it is in the middle of happening, we are expected to speak. But the good news from Jesus to his apostles here is the same good news to you. When it's time for you to speak, God will be with you. He will give you the words to speak. I know some of you know what this is like. I know what this is like. I've experienced the feeling of being so intimidated by the fact that whoever it is I'm talking to you might wind up asking a question or or rebutting something I've said in a way that I don't know how to answer. Or worry that if I say something in a not perfect way, I'm going to ruin everything. I get it. I really do. But that's where this passage comes in. God will give you what you need to say when it's time for you to say it. And you will say it how he wants you to say it. And even if it doesn't sound like it's coming out of your mouth in the most profound way, you just want to go, maybe I shouldn't have said it that way. It's okay because God is perfectly capable of using feebly constructed phrases with imperfect grammar or pronunciation even to accomplish his purposes. So friends, speak. Even when you're suffering, for it, especially when you're suffering for it. So the call to be wary, the call to be courageous, and now, third, the call to be strong. Oh, friends, you thought the call to speak courageously was hard. Get a load of this. Evidently, the hatred and opposition that Jesus' apostles would face was not going to be limited to government officials or those who would turn you into them. Apparently, it would also include family. It would actually include all kinds of people. Read verses 21 and 22 again. Brother will deliver brother to death. A father, his child, and children against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Friends, listen carefully. This is a hard word from Jesus. Apparently, following him in his call to be and make disciples necessarily will include hatred in some way towards you. Following Jesus in his call to being and making disciples will necessarily include being hated. And though he does say here, you will be hated by all, we certainly don't take that hyper literally the apostles certainly had some friends and family members who did love them but in other words all kinds of people from all kinds of walks of life from all kinds of different backgrounds and contexts will be hating the apostles for the message of the kingdom of jesus that they were going to spread and jesus just acknowledges that reality right here 
And once again, I just have to bemoan the fact that we 21st century American Christians often have almost no idea what this is like. And in some ways, we can be thankful for that. We should be grateful for the context in which we were born, if where we were born and where we live is a place where we're not facing government, military resistance to the gospel. That's a good thing. I'm not saying that it makes us any less of a Christian if we feel like we've never faced hatred because we love Jesus. But doesn't this at least make you think that if our Christian experience is just one of coasting through everything super easily. No opposition, no resistance, no division, no persecution of any kind. And remember, it doesn't have to be the exact same as the apostles. But then shouldn't you at least take a moment to think through your own life as a disciple maker and disciple? Because what Jesus is saying here really is staggering. He's saying that the spread of the gospel and the message itself will bring division. Tragic division, such as in families. And here's where you might go, well, now wait a second. I thought that Jesus was the Prince of Peace. Well, here's what I'm going to say about that. Make sure you listen to the rest of the sermon series because more of that is coming in just a few passages. There'll be a little bit more detail. But for now, just hear his call. Even though you're going to face hatred, quite possibly even from your own family, you will be saved from it in the end. That's the point of the end of verse 22. The one who endures will, in the end, be saved. And that doesn't mean that people who endure to the end will earn the kind of salvation that comes to those who trust in Jesus by faith. It's a different kind of saved that Jesus is talking about here. What he's saying is things are going to get rough for people who are really committed to following me. Families will be divided. Friends will become enemies. But stay strong and endure even when you're facing that and salvation from that will come. Not salvation like converting to Christianity. Salvation like being freed from, saved from hostility and persecution. In other words... Persecution won't last forever. Enemies of the gospel will not ultimately prevail. Enemies of the gospel will either be overcome by God's grace and become a glorious display of His mercy through their own conversion, or they will suffer His judgment. Perhaps you're like me and have this in common with me. One of my greatest besetting sins my entire life has been the fear of man. I know Proverbs is right when it says that the fear of man brings a snare. We can be so worried. I have been so worried about people rejecting or disliking us that we can become paralyzed in our willingness and ability to serve. Thoughts have come to my mind like this, and perhaps you can relate. If I say fill in the blank, they won't like me anymore. Or if I do whatever it is, my opportunities in life will decrease or my career will be harmed or I'm going to miss out on certain kinds of benefits. Or, listen, I'm good with the call to being and making disciples as long as it doesn't include me seeming weird to anyone. We have to admit, these are the kinds of thoughts that we've had. 
And friends, this call to the apostles is one that we can and must relate to too. Friends, stay strong. Endure to the end. The opposition that you will face along the way won't last forever. The enemies of the kingdom will not prevail. But Jesus, His people, His church, and His kingdom will prevail. Jesus will say this later in Matthew 16. He will say, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. That's exactly what the hymn by Charles Wesley, written in the 1700s, means when it says, His kingdom cannot fail. He rules over earth and heaven. The The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. Lift up your heart. Lift up your voice. Rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord, the judge, shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart. Lift up your voice. Rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. How about the one by Martin Luther that he wrote in the 1500s? I'm really tempted to just have us sing it. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred or family go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So be strong, my friends. If you endure to the end, you will be saved. The fourth and final call in this Discipleship 102 is to be wise. And this verse is somewhat similar to what we saw Jesus say in verses 15, 14 and 15. He says in verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What he's saying here is similar to what he said in 14 and 15. Sometimes you need to move on. Sometimes going to the next town is exactly what God's providence has for you and what the persecution he has sovereignly ordained for you in this town is bringing about, moving you to the next town. I've been reading through Acts in my own morning coffee and Bible and prayer time. Probably shouldn't put coffee first in that list. Although sometimes it feels like it goes a lot better when I have the coffee. And as I've been reading, I've been struck by the fact, particularly even just this last Wednesday morning, by the fact that as persecution came, the gospel spread. It moved out from Jerusalem into other cities and regions, and eventually the whole known world was characterized by having access to it in some way. So that's, I think, the essence of what Jesus is saying here in verse 23. Be wise, move on when you need to. I might be moving you to another region that needs gospel advance. But there's also something else here that we have to take just a moment for. It's really not the point of the verse, but it's interesting and it's important 
for us to understand this for the sake of other upcoming passages too. Jesus says something here that is a little bit perplexing at the end of verse 23. He says, Truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, some conclude that this is an example of teaching on what some theologians call the, here's a really big phrase, I should have put it on the screen, the eschatological parousia. That's a weird phrase if you've never heard it before, but basically what it means and what it's referring to is the coming of Jesus at the end of all things. The parousia is the Greek word commonly associated with the presence and coming of the kingdom of God and is often associated even with the second coming or the, the ultimate final fulfillment of all things. But frankly, I don't think that interpretation of this instance of the Son of Man comes makes any sense. In part because this is in the context of actual men being sent as apostles to actual towns at that very moment to spread the gospel. It's not a context at all associated with the second coming or the end of all things. But also because the word translated uh, the Son of Man comes, that word comes, is not actually the Greek word parousia. Even though some people tend to think that this just must be what it is referring to. It's just a more generic word for come. And so I think to interpret this small phrase here at the end as having to do with the end of all things and the second coming of Jesus is a mistake. So what's the deal with this phrase before the Son of Man comes? Well, for starters, in context, we've already seen in Matthew's gospel that Jesus uses this title, the Son of Man, to refer to himself. So we've got to start there. We understand that Jesus is talking about himself when he says the Son of Man. But it's not just a name he happens to like for himself. It's a title that he uses very strategically where he is claiming for himself and referring back to Old Testament language and imagery that is found in multiple locations, but perhaps most notably in Daniel 7, where Daniel the prophet sees a vision where the Son of Man comes. He comes to the Ancient of Days to receive all authority in heaven on earth. See that up on the screen. With the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him, and to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that will not be destroyed." And so the coming of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is not a coming to earth, it's a coming to God. You see that? And so in Daniel 7, the Son of Man coming in the clouds to the Most High and is given all authority and dominion. And that's really important if we're going to understand Jesus' use of the Son of Man comes here in Matthew 10.23. And so, I think it makes more sense to understand the coming of the Son of Man here that Jesus is talking about as not simply referring to that final day when He comes back at the end of all things, but rather the coming in the clouds, so to speak, before God, as in Daniel 7, where He would receive all authority and dominion. So, in other words, what I'm saying is that Jesus is saying here in Matthew 10, 23, you're not going to finish with every town around here before my time of receiving all authority arrives. And that time, of course, being exactly what Jesus referred to after he rose and before he ascended, which is at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, when he said, all authority has been given to me. 
Now go and make disciples. And by the way, interestingly, Daniel speaks of the Son of Man coming in the clouds to the Father. And Luke's account of Jesus' ascension in Acts tells us that Jesus departed how? In the clouds. So, I know that's a lot to say about one little phrase in one verse and about an interpretative, interpretative issue that isn't really the bigger point here, but I think it's important to note because there's more about this coming up in Matthew's gospel. But really what I think we have here in this verse is a call to be wise. Not a verse about the signs of the second coming. Not a verse about the end of all things. But a call to be wise as his servants pursued ministry in their region, anticipating a time that was coming after the resurrection and before the ascension when all authority was given to Jesus. And so the real point of verse 23 is just that persecution will come and it will spread you to other towns. And so be wise and move on when you need to. Well, all of this altogether really is quite the package. And perhaps you see why I think of it more as a 102 class than a 101 class. These calls to be wary, courageous, strong, and wise are accompanied by some very difficult truths. But my friend, listen, every one of them is within your reach by the grace of God. As you submit to Him, as you follow Him in faith through His power, you can also respond to these calls in your own Christian life and ministry. So my friend, don't let your response to these difficult and even confrontational and convicting truths of this passage about the need for boldness, about the reality of persecution and opposition, about the division that the gospel necessarily brings, and about the need to be committed to the kingdom-spreading work of Jesus, no matter how hard it gets, drive you to despair. Please do not despair. Do not wallow in any kind of guilt or feelings of condemnation that you may feel because of any amount of failure. Look up, my friend. Remember that the one speaking these words to the apostles then, at the literal time when this was what this was recording, and through His Word to you now is the same Jesus that came for you, that died for you, that rose for you, that loves you, and that is seated at the right hand of the Father now. So put your hope in Him every day, trust Him every day, and follow Him every day, even when it means suffering, even when it means difficult, sacrificial decision-making even when it means stepping out of your ideals, your comforts, your plans. God is with you, and you will have all the grace that you need. Let's pray for it now. Lord, we have to acknowledge together that our experience of Christian life and ministry has rarely experienced the kind of opposition in nature or in intensity or duration that your apostles faced long ago. Or even that your servants have been facing ever since in some similar and different ways. Please help us not to mistakenly conclude that the only way to follow these words of yours is to go somewhere where it is on the line, where that kind of suffering is on the line. Some of us may be called to do that. 
But for some of us, we are called to a kind of opposition that is different. Opposition in our workplace or in our neighborhood or even in our own families. So while we would ask you to guard us against an extreme on one side of just assuming that we have to have lives that look exactly the way these apostles did, please also guard us from the other side of that spectrum that is just as wrong. Expecting no suffering. Living in a way that doesn't bring any kind of opposition. Constantly shrinking back in fear. Waiting until it's the most ideal possible scenario for us to share the truth. Lord, help us as individuals and as a church to be characterized as those who are being and making disciples no matter the cost. Give us the courage that we need to be bold. Give us the wisdom and wariness that you would have us to have. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Let's continue for just a few minutes in prayer. Amen.